all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Hope everybody is having a great Wednesday morning. A little bit chilly this morning and last night. I hope you got everything you needed to get in. I know I got my plants and I have a fair amount of orchids that I had to go hunt where I put them out in the trees in the hot summer that they did so well. But uh, had to make sure I got all of those and any animals as well and uh making sure you sort of switch over to uh, what we call cold weather anyway in the south. Um, but, um, yeah, I even had a few uh, a few critters come up. Actually, I went back outside with my dog right before I went to sleep, and uh, sure enough, there's a, a possum that was uh, partaking of uh, her dog food, and that, unfortunately the possum did not last long. Um, so, But seriously, uh, I think we need to you know just to think about that. The, the times that those change, and we can have weather change so quickly in Mississippi between hot and cold, it's important to remember the effects of that, particularly on those individuals that may health, have health care needs uh, and younger individuals that may be more susceptible uh, to those weather changes. So just keep that in mind and uh, bundle up. Uh, it's a little bit colder out there. It was nice to hunt down my sweater this morning so I can put that on, but just want to make sure that you are uh, taking care of yourself. Southern Remedy is the program, particularly on Wednesdays, that we basically open up all of our phone lines to any and all questions you might have about any healthcare question that is pertaining to you or somebody in your family, or maybe it's somebody that you know. It might be a new symptom that you're having that you can't quite figure out that you hadn't talked to anybody about yet, or it might be some questions specific to either the prevention of various things, uh, healthcare problems uh, that are down the line, like cancer screenings and et cetera. But there might be some uh, other things that you just don't quite know about, like a medication that you've been put on and might have some potential side effects or potential interactions with other medications. Or maybe you're looking uh, just for a second opinion on something. All those questions and more, anything, again, related to your health care, you can reach us right now. Email us. We try to uh, get uh, responses back to our email listeners as quickly as we can. But we also like to share those if you give us permission with uh, our larger audience. The email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Got a recent email about tinnitus. Uh, so that is ringing in your ears. So basically the question was, what is that? What's causing it? Is that a neurologic problem or could it be something else? 
And who exactly uh, sees me for that, if you're uh, asking somebody about tinnitus? So tinnitus is fairly common, so it is a ringing in the ears. It can be accompanied by, with a number of symptoms, including vertigo, which is a dizzy feeling, but the, the vertigo component pertains to the room spinning. So there's a, there's a rotational component to vertigo. But basically, it can be caused by a number of things. So ringing uh, in your ears can be a problem with hearing itself. So there are situations where uh, you may have lost hearing or had damage to uh, your hearing, the uh, neurologic part of that anyway, or even the, uh, the little bones that transmit those sounds uh, to the inner ear. And uh, sometimes those are accompanied with a ringing sensation or ringing uh, sounds that you're hearing. It may also be damage to that inner ear uh, circuitry with all the, the neurons there because it's very sensitive or uh, even the vestibular apparatus. So the inner ear does two things. Basically, it uh, interprets those vibratory signals that it receives from the eardrum and the bones that connect it to the, the nerves on the inner ear portion. And then those nerves transmit that information to the brain so that it can interpret it. Now, sometimes that can be something that happens in the inner ear itself. Sometimes it can be something that is uh, pushing on that. So, you know, the question is, is it a tumor every time? Most of the time it isn't, but it can be um, different things that pop up. Uh, One example of that is an acoustic neuroma, which is a tumor that sort of encroaches on the nerves in the ear and can cause hearing loss. And it can also cause tinnitus or ringing in your ears. Basically, you just need to get that looked at. Now, sometimes it's um, it is it can be um, both diagnosed and treated um, um, appropriately by your primary care person. So it can be your nurse practitioner or your primary care physician that you go to. Uh, particularly if it's related to uh, to vertigo, there's a common condition um, that uh, is benign, doesn't cause any long-term problems. It can be very disturbing, though, that sometimes uh, presents with tinnitus in a rotational or vertigo component. And a lot of times you can correct that right there in the office by doing, there's some funny maneuvers that we do with somebody on the, on the examination table that um, basically we're reorienting the inner ear to those uh, signals that, it, that it's getting to of where that person is in space. But sometimes it may require further testing. And because it's the inner ear, you really can't see that. When you look in the ear, you can only see basically, you know, between the outer part of the ear all the way up to the eardrum if it's intact, but you really can't see past that too much. Well, sometimes we can see fluid on the other side of that eardrum because it's so thin, but most of the time you can't see past that point. So uh, certain x-rays or CT scans or even an MRI may be appropriate, not every time. So don't go to your doctor and say, hey, I'm having ringing in my ears, I need an MRI. Um, But in some cases, after a thorough history and exam, they may want to do that. Um, or they may see a problem that they can fix uh, before that. There may be some uh, acoustic testing or hearing testing that's involved, too. Uh, there are some quick and easy things we can do at the bedside. But really, to get the most information about any kind of uh, particular frequency loss or how bad that is, and to determine whether this is a neurologic problem with the damage to the nerves that detect those sounds, or if it is um, a conductive problem that involves more of the eardrum 
uh, the space between the outside and that eardrum and the bones that connect that eardrum to the inner ear. So all of that's pretty complicated, and there's a big long list of things. Like if you looked this up on uh, on uh, a you know if you looked at all the different causes of tinnitus, there's a list of about 15 things that you have to sort of think about. But all of those can present in a different kind of way. Um, if you have recently had an insult to the ear, I think all of us may have, you know, most of us have, have experienced something like a shotgun blast went off next to your ear or a loud noise uh, that you were exposed to uh, with heavy equipment uh, that uh, was really loud. That can certainly cause ringing in your ear. Most of the time that goes away, that's self-limiting. But again, that's a short-term damage that has occurred to those uh, that the apparatus that interprets those vibrations as sound in your ear. Uh, so that's very common. Uh, usually that goes away. Sometimes it can be longer. Trauma can do this too. So sometimes people who are in car wrecks or car accidents, uh, you know, they can basically uh, damage those cells just because of the deceleration uh, movements within the skull itself. And um, that may take some time to to uh, to heal up. So lots of different things that may cause that. Um, I would see your general practitioner first. They may send you to the ear, nose, and throat doctor or the otolaryngologist. Uh, you know us doctors, we like to have those long words and names, but they're the experts with the eye, uh, with the uh, ears, nose, and throat areas of the skull. Um, and then there may be, you know, some instances where you might need to see a neurologist. Again, it's basically it's it's determined on those initial history. Uh, factors and exam and then maybe some further testing. So hopefully that it probably uh, I dug into it enough to, to dig up all kinds of questions, but uh, you can take that to your doctor just to find out some things. Again, very common to have ringing in your ears, uh, but there's all kinds of different things that might uh, might be involved in, in that. going to go to our first caller now, and that's Alice in Macomb. Good morning, Alice. Thank you for calling. Yes, uh, you're talking about my problem. Yes, ma'am. Vertigo and all that, never heard, never heard of it before. But I done had my eardrum busted and the lightning hit me in my ear. Oh, goodness. That was over 30 some years ago, so I'm having kind of big problems now with the raining and the ocean sound. And yeah, yeah. And you know, it, it, I'll just. Uh, I hope I'm not interrupting too soon, but the the if you think about the eardrum and you think about a drum, you know, like how a drum produces sound, the eardrum works in sort of the opposite way. So all those vibratory signals from sounds traveling down the ear canal, they get sort of focused on that, and then it vibrates and transmits it to the little bones through or ossicles, some we sometimes call them, that are really small bones that connect that and those vibratory movements to the inner ear. But if your eardrum is damaged in some way, and that can be trauma, it can be loud noises, like you mentioned, uh, you can have, it's amazing like how much it it grows back like people who like myself when they were smaller who had tubes in their ears well that's just a they basically poke a hole through the the tympanic membrane the eardrum to allow I for surgery he did he had to do surgery it was, uh, my eardrum was busted and i had surgery on that over 30 years ago 
Yeah, that's where I was. That's exactly what I was about to say. That sometimes the damage is severe enough that they uh, either have to remove some of that scar tissue or they have to sort of rebuild the eardrum itself. Almost always, you continually to have some problems with hearing on that ear from something like that. But it, it it can persist for a long time, and the whooshing sounds and sort of like you're listening to a seashell at the seashore. That's yeah. that's a result of that. That's a common result that people have after that, you know, having damage or having reconstruction like that. And sometimes that doesn't go away, unfortunately. And it ain't all the time. It's just sometimes, just nerve-wracking sometimes. It ain't every day. And when that boom, 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 that loud music thing. Yes, ma'am. And that, that didn't make trouble. Yeah. That, another thing that I'm sure you know about if you've had damage like that, or if you, you know, if you or your child has, uh, you know, tubes in their ears, it's less common for adults to have that. Uh, you don't want to get water in there. You know, our eardrum protects that inner ear if we're submerged under water. But um, you, if if you've had damage to that, or you have a perforation, a little hole in that, uh, or anything that's bigger. You don't want to get water in there because then, then you can run into some problems with infection and all kinds of things. Okay. All right, Alice. We, uh, uh, I hope that that uh, uh, talked about your issues. Is is that a pretty much it? But is it? Uh, do I have to wear myself practically to death because I'm on go blind or not hearing and nothing? Is that anything you can worry about? I would say if you've been dealing with it for thirty years and it's just the things that you mentioned, it's probably okay. It's more preventive to just sort of protect that ear if you you know if you get uh, in a situation where you're you know with, with water and that kind of thing. If you're outside and it's raining, I wouldn't worry about it. Or if you're just, you know, even bathing, I wouldn't worry about it. But, uh, no, I, I would think that, uh, you know, based on what you've told me, there's probably not too many other things that you need to do to protect it, except for just knowing those things that, that are going to have those side effects that you mentioned, like louder noises, for instance. Something I think might be important, let me know. Sometimes I get to eat and I hold them a little bit, I get a... Uh, yeah, I'd be I would be really careful with that, with putting things in the ear canal, because, again, that can get in the inner ear. If your if okay. your eardrum's still there, it's OK. But in your case, that those oily and thick things that can sometimes harm that inner ear cavity. So I would be very careful about doing that. Even if he doesn't repair it. What's oh? Uh, if it's repaired, just check with them first. If they repaired the whole thing, it's probably okay to use that. Okay, then you're right. I better check before I do too much to it and mess it up more. Absolutely, more. absolutely. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, Alice. You take care and have a good day. We do appreciate you. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions about any kind of health care issue that you might have. Had a great question and comment from Alice. Uh, We were talking about ear health, particularly in the setting of previous injury to ear. We sort of uh, ended that conversation on what is appropriate to put in your ear canal and what is not. Um, For the general public, too, that's one that, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions out there. And a lot of misconceptions about earwax. Earwax is a protective substance that everybody's ears produce. Now, it can be different in consistency. Some people have sort of more softer earwax. Some people have harder, brittle earwax. And some people produce a lot of it, and others don't. It's sort of like a different parts of the body do different things differently in different people. 
But it is a protective mechanism to help protect that inner ear canal and protect it against foreign substances that might irritate it or things that might get lodged in the ear canal. Um, So you don't want all the wax out of your ear. I know some people are are so just fastidious about this that they'll just like clean their ears, clean their ears, clean their ears. Probably not a good idea to do that. And it's generally not a good idea to put like a Q-tip in your ear. I know I'm guilty of that too from time to time, but uh, particularly if it's not, you know, further than what you can see, just because that's going down into that area that's your ear canal, you could do some damage down there. Now, if you have a, a, a cerumen or, or earwax, that's another name for earwax problem, there's different commercial things to sort of clean that out. So if it gets to the point where you've got earwax that's just been impacted, and a lot of times we see that just because people have used something like a Q-tip, and every time they do that, they sort of smush that wax up against the eardrum, and it becomes harder and harder and harder. But there are some commercial agents that you can use, like Ceruminex and earwax removal kits that you can get over the counter at the pharmacy, and those are pretty good. The one thing I would say not to do, a lot of people use hydrogen peroxide or mix that with alcohol even. That's really creating an environment in that ear canal that's not optimal, and it tends to dry out the inner ear uh, and can do a lot of damage. Now, sometimes I know ear, ear, nose, and throat doctors may say do that after you're in the pool or you know during different times to sort of clean that out. That's okay. Take their advice. But generally speaking, that's that's not the usual thing that you want to put in the ear canal, and it can actually do more damage if it gets dried out. Uh, again, some of the mineral-based oils are better. Now, a lot of people will do, you know, some of the essential oils and things like that in their ear canal. Honestly, the particularly the the uh, more fragrant ones. Anytime something has a sort of really strong fragrant smell, a lot of times that can irritate the skin of some people, and you don't want to do that and put it in your ear, and now you can't get it out as easily. Um, So I've seen some patients that came in and they did that in their ear canal and they ended up having a big inflammation in there. So just keep that in mind. And, um, you know, when in doubt, get somebody who's trained to look in there. We have equipment called an otoscope to do that. And we can see all the way down to the eardrum. And, you know, some people come to me and they say, I just feel like I've got something in my ear. I look in there and there's nothing in there. It's like, well, it's not from something being in there. So don't go digging in a hole that you can't see. Uh, not knowing what's what's going to happen because uh, we are really you know hearing is very important we tend to uh, push that aside with a lot of people and they don't really uh, um, take care of that in the way that they should uh, dr jimmy i've got a question and also a quick comment the uh, earwax removal kits to me have been very effective that's got the drops and a, a bulb and you put a little warm water in there and that has been real effective for me and one kind of bizarre home remedy that uh, i my cousins, uh, what years ago, went up to visit. Uh, they made some homemade candles, and they stuck a candle in your ear and lit the candle. That that one probably is not such a good idea either. Yeah, that one looks like a medieval torture device. But um, so it's supposed to wick stuff out of there. 
Um, again, I, you know, I know in theory that might work, but anytime you have a lit flame that near your hair and your, your head, even if you don't have a lot of hair on your head, uh, near your skin, I would not recommend that. There's better ways to do it. And you, you describe some of the, some of the ways you could do that. So I do have a, a kind of a two part question and it, uh, is, uh, it dawned on me as I grew older, why does our hair tra- change colors? We get older, generally, usually gray or white. But the other thing I've noticed is that certain parts like uh, on I have a goatee and I've noticed that the hair right around my chin is often whiter than other parts of you know my head or my face so any thoughts on that yeah so our hairs are laid down in a in a, what's called a matrix so it's a um, at the at the base of the hair shaft there are certain specialized cells that produce keratin which is a hard substance that makes up hair and also um, nails and it has some other substances in there to make that into the various components. And then that gets sort of pushed out, and it's attached to the the hair that's already there in the follicle. The follicle is just like a like little canal where it, where it is uh, uh, where it's made. So as that grows, it also lays down um, pigment. And everybody has different pigment color to that. So some people are born, you know, with, with more pigment. And the more pigment you have, the darker the color is going to be. Um, so if you're a, uh, brunette, that's going to be a little bit darker. If you're blonde, it's going to be, you know, not as much pigment that's laid down. As we get older, those cells, like the rest of our cells, they age, they lose the ability to lay down that pigment in that, that fashion. So it'll be a deficiency of the, of the pigment or an absence of it. So that's where you get the gray or white hairs. Now, the distribution is very interesting, and we really don't have all the, at least I haven't seen all the information about why that occurs, why you can retain pigment in certain areas of your head. Some people, it's, it's uh, you know, very dramatic. They'll have... Uh, a certain area of their head, their head uh, that produces hairs that are white um, as they get older, and uh, that may be damaged to that area of uh, skin cells that are producing that. Um, but some people, yeah, for for your beard too, really every area of the body, you can have a gray hair that that pops up, um, and uh, that uh, just doesn't isn't producing that pigment like it used to. So it's just that continual aging of those cells, and they sort of lose that ability to do that in the way that they did. It is interesting, like that, uh, both hair color or any kind of pigment changes over time, particularly hair color or eye color. Um, you know, the the iris of our eyes is the the colored part of our eyes, and it's interesting. I, you know, you may have somebody in your family that when they were born. They had blue eyes, and now they have brown. And they can change even sort of back and forth. My oldest son, uh, you know, he uh, developed really dark eyes pretty early um, and dark brown. And then now they have more of a green tint to it. It's very interesting how that can change over time. Same thing with hair color. Uh, usually after you're about 20 or so or your teens, that's pretty locked in, and then you can have aging of that. Some people have premature graying. There's been a lot of studies that tried to associate that to different health problems. You know, for a long time, there was sort of this lay thought that um, that if you were premature graying in your 20s, that that was uh, a um, associated with premature heart disease. Doesn't really pan out. It just means that that part of your body, the hair follicles, they're just not they just get worn out doing their job and they quit doing that. 
uh, and the hair changes the color over time. So uh, not hadn't really borne out to be something that's an important risk factor or an association with something. But a great question, as usual, from our producer, Kevin Farrell. This is MPB uh, uh, Think Radio Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. We're going to go to, uh-oh, we just lost them. I think we had Tom from Brandon. Please call back, Tom. We would love to hear from you. And we uh, had unfortunately dropped Tom, uh, but we have Tom back right now. Let's go to him from Brandon. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Dr. Jimmy. Uh, I had no intention to call this morning, uh, except that, I don't know, by some uh, karma, you're talking hearing. And I wanted to ask about an incident that happened to me over the weekend. Uh, and it's kind of uh, unusual for sure. Okay. I was playing in a match play golf tournament uh, Saturday, and on the 10th hole, I hit my drive a little to the right, and it rolled down into a grove of trees. Uh, I uh, foolishly went up to survey what my second shot would look like trying to get back and play. I say foolishly because my opponent was behind me about 30 yards, but he'd been playing pretty good, and uh, he was just off the fairway a little bit. Well, as it happens, he hits probably his worst shot of the day. It hits to the right, hits a tree limb, and comes right straight down on top of my head. And almost immediately, obviously, uh, a little stunned at the beginning, uh, I recognized that my I lost some hearing in my left ear. It was faint uh, compared to what it was prior to that lick. Is there a connection between getting hit? It didn't hit the ear or anything. It hit right on the top of my head. Uh, And like I say, once I got the blood to stop, uh, I noticed that uh, there was my hearing in the left ear was more faint than it had been prior. Yeah, that that's exactly what can happen. And you know, we tend to think it's, you know, if it's if it's not in the same exact area like uh, right around the ear getting hit, um you know, it, it can't cause problems, but no, you know, a golf ball can do a lot of damage and um I I most of my family sort of grew up on a golf course um off and on with my grandparents and um there's a lot of injuries that can happen with a golf ball, particularly if it strikes the head. The problem is not necessarily where it hits, although it can do damage there, but it's like the the forces that get transmitted through the skull uh, to other areas. Now, most of the time, it's just what we call a ballistic injury to the skull where it hit. Um, and some of that may have been, you know, if you get hit with a golf ball that comes off a club face, that hurts. It's happened to me, used to work on the golf course, and there were several times I got hit. Uh, fortunately not in the head, but that those, those pressure waves that get transmitted from the skull can damage other parts of it. And you wouldn't think, cause it's, you know, most people are like, well, I got hit. Uh, if you've ever gotten hit in the head from anything and even like a concussion, it's common that people hear ringing in their ears. And that's because it's of those pressure waves that can, um, that can affect those really sensitive nerves in the ear. And if you think about it, like vibrations are sound, but it's vibrations in the air, right? If you put your ear to a desk and somebody taps on the desk, 
it's a lot louder because those waves get transmitted through those solid objects a lot faster and with more intensity. So our ear is designed to pick up those vibrations. When you have a force that hits your head like that, like a golf ball at high velocity, once it hits the head, it generates vibratory signals uh, or those pressure waves that travel through all the bones in the head. And it's really quick, but it can be enough in intensity of those waves to cause some damage in that ear. So that's that fits exactly with how the ear sort of is set up to work. And any kind of loud noise uh, that generates those signals that go down to the ear canal, to the eardrum, and then the ear ossicles, little bones to the inner ear, the same thing can happen if you get hit in the head and all that gets transmitted in similar fashion through the bones to those uh, inner ear cells. Now, that hopefully that'll be a transient thing, but if it's if you're still having problems after about a week, I'd probably go have somebody take a look at you. It's we're probably not going to have any kind of uh, fractured skull or anything like that. Um, if you're you know particularly if where it hit, if you feel that part of it and it's fine, but you may need to get seen just to make sure there's not something else going on. But that's a very common injury from a ballistic injury like that. Um, people will say, hey, I, had, I was in a car wreck, and my, I can't hear now. It wasn't necessarily a loud um, you know, noise that they remember hearing, but it is that pressure wave. It doesn't have to be the loud noise that you remember, but it's the pressure wave that gets transmitted down to those really sensitive cells that are designed to pick those things up. Well, that's interesting. I did not have any ringing right after the hit, but uh, like I say, both faint and in the next day or two, you know, I listened to uh, headphones and that ear sounded uh, a little fuzzy, like a reverberation mm-hmm. uh, that was going on. And I'm happy to hear that perhaps, because uh, I was hoping that after a few days uh, and maybe a week, as you said, uh, it would maybe return to normal. Yeah, I'd give it a little bit more time, uh, and if it's not getting better, say, after a week, week and a half, I think I would contact your your uh, doctor to maybe take a look and just make sure everything looks okay from the outside. But they may want to do some other testing, like a formal hearing testing, just to sort of quantify that. Okay, well, thanks, doctor. At, uh, like I say, I wasn't prepared to call today, but you're, you happen to be talking about the subject that uh, concerned me today. So I appreciate your uh, insight. Absolutely, Tom. You take care. Thank you. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. You can email us. The email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Don't forget about our podcast options, too. Not everybody can listen live to our show, but you can catch uh, older archive programs on whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Just search for Southern Remedy and MPB uh, Think Radio. Uh, one of the recent emails asked a question about stomach acid. You know, this is one of those things that I think we, we misinterpret the function, the normal function of a lot of things in the body, and stomach acid is one of those. Um, you know, there's a lot of people are, that say, hey, we're not supposed to have any stomach acid or we're supposed to have not enough. The question was actually, what happens when you don't have enough stomach acid and how can you increase the amount of stomach acid? So is a, that's a difficult question, but I thought it was one that we should talk about a little bit. 
just because there's not really too many things that can cause a decrease in the amount of stomach acid. So the the stomach forms a couple of functions. So it starts the digestive or continues the digestive process. Uh, you know, food's broken down by the mouth. It's transported to the stomach. The stomach's a muscular sac that can move food around in a water environment uh, and saliva, which contains some enzymes to help break down that food a little bit. It's combined with an, an acidic environment, and it's really pretty acidic, like the pH is 2, with 2 to 3, which is, that's a lot of acid. Um but that's normal. That's what should normally happen. Now, why doesn't it eat a hole through the stomach itself? Well, because those it has uh, cells that secrete this mucus li- uh, lining uh, to the stomach to help protect the cells. So acid gets secreted. There's a protective lining uh, that is secreted by the, some of the cells on the interior of the stomach. And then that, get, that gets rapidly moved on into the small intestines. The pH raises naturally. There's different enzymes and things that can do that. Um, but to break it down initially, you need that acidic environment. Now, most of the problems occur, occur when there's a disruption in that barrier um, or there's an overproduction of acid or that acidic material doesn't stay in the stomach. So it can go back up into the esophagus, and that's when we get heartburn. You can have some scarring and some changes of those cells, and it can put you at risk for things like esophageal cancer or Barrett's esophagus, which is just a precancerous uh, transformation there. Um, or it can cause problems in the stomach itself. So that's another, um, you know, that's another possibility. Some of the medications we use to decrease that are the, the uh, proton pump inhibitors. These are things like that, uh, like omeprazole or pantoprazole are two examples of that, Nexium or Protonix. Um, or it might be an H2 blocker like Zantac or Pepsid. Um, but these can interfere with the ability of the stomach to secrete acid. There's a lot of things that you can take to sort of buffer the acid. So this would be something like calcium carbonate or Tums that raises the pH because it mainly buffers that acid. It sort of ties it up um, and allows it to sort of, uh, um, you know, make that a less acidic environment. But I'm not aware of, of too many conditions where you're not making enough acid. I suppose there might be some conditions where you might have some the cells that do that in your stomach that stop the production of it. But usually it's a problem of just the opposite. So you might want to check um, our listener who emailed this. You might want to check with your physician just to make sure you heard them right uh, about that because we typically don't increase the, the uh uh, acidity of our stomachs too much. Um, and the other thing is foods. Foods can certainly trigger that. Everybody knows what your own little trigger is. Uh, it might be something that's spicy or peppermint. It doesn't have to be a lot of food. Fatty foods can sometimes do it too for some people. Everybody has a little bit different triggers. You know, everybody likes to say chocolate, caffeine. I don't want to take that away from everybody that's having a heartburn, but you just need to know what your own triggers are. And then um, if you have persistent symptoms, though, you want to get that checked out because there may be other things going on. There is a bacteria that that degrades that lining of the stomach called Helicobacter pylori or H. pylori, and that's one we can test. We can treat it. Um, but uh, you you don't uh, necessarily can clear that up with the usual treatments unless uh, if somebody has that uh, infection in their stomach, you want to make sure that you identify it and treat it. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. We're going to go to our next caller, who is Bobby from Biloxi. Good morning, Bobby. Hey, good morning. Um, I have a question about a nuclear stress test. 
uh, I had a triple bypass last October and went back for my one-year checkup with the cardiologist. I wound up seeing the PA, uh, and I've had a very uneventful recovery, and things went better than anybody ever expected. But um, I explained to her that I was having some chest pain a little bit, in, but, but it felt like muscle pain on both sides of my chest, kind of in the pecs, um, and more, sometimes more so in the evening or when I was laying down. And she kind of passing that it could be GERD, um, acid reflux, so I don't taste anything in my throat or anything. And um, she suggested that a, we get a, uh, a cardiac CT. The insurance company decided that a stress test, a nuclear stress test, might be better, or at least that's what the doctor negotiated with them. And I haven't had the test yet, but I'm, so I went back to read about GERD and all that, and I'm thinking, I think that's what I got. <laughs> but is there any downside to going ahead and doing that nuclear stress test? Um, besides just cost of it, and, you know, if this is the way that I usually in, in most physicians should approach this is you, you, the symptoms tell you a lot. Like the symptoms that people have, they're not 100% certain, but most of the time, if you get a good description of the symptoms, the timing of them, what uh, the exacerbating factors are, the alleviating factors, how they, they occurred, the other things that were going on, if you get a really good history, you can make the diagnosis, particularly in something like this, about 90 to 95% of the time. Now, we corroborate with that. We back that up with different tests after you take that good history and, and a physical exam, too. Um, so if it sounds like that it's more heart-related, particularly in somebody like yourself that we know might have some, you know, some heart disease there, then you want to go with the test that's the most specific for it. CT, um, CT uh, uh, cardiac exams, or tests rather, they look at the calcium score. So it's the CT calcium score basically is what they're doing. They're looking at the burden of that calcium within vessel walls. That's not necessarily the best test, though, because that's usually in an individual that we don't know that they have heart disease, and we're thinking about putting them on something like a statin. Uh, like a cholesterol medication that can reduce that burden or at least reduce their risk of heart attack. Um, one of the stress tests, though, and you mentioned you know, a nuclear stress test is certainly a great way to do that because it does two things. It can show you where there's a decrease in blood flow in the heart, and it can also show you some of the heart function. There are a lot of different ways to do these. Um, the uh, straight-up nuclear test is one. Sometimes they'll do an echo, which is just looking at the heart with an ultrasound to look at the wall motion and how well it's functioning at the same time. They're combined together. But if it sounds like it's more like reflux, then the thing to do is to treat it like reflux first. So it might be a short course of those um uh, you know, of Pepsid or of one of the um, PPIs that we just talked about, like Nexium or Protonix, you can take that for two weeks. We don't like to take it for long term if we can help it because it has other side effects. But um, you can take that if the pain goes away and then you stop it and it doesn't come back. It was reflux. But if if the pretest probability is is the term we use, if it's high enough. In, in somebody who already has known heart disease, it may not be such a bad idea to get that. And I think you said you had the previous one last year? 
Uh, yeah, I had the cabbages um, last October. Yeah, and if it was a, ca- I mean, if it's a tree cabbage, that's you know, and we say cabbage that we're not talking about something you pull out of the garden. So that's coronary artery bypass yeah. graft, right? So I know you know that, Bobby, but our, our listeners may not may not be familiar with that. So that's the old cut you open surgery where they actually take a vein or an artery and they uh, bypass that uh, segment of your heart arteries that are clogged up. Those typically last uh, anywhere from 10 to 15 years, particularly with the newer medications that we have to, to, for those health of those vessels. So it would be highly unlikely that there was something that was wrong with those. However, if there were other areas of your heart that had some decreased blood flow, then it's possible this might be from that. But um, again, that's sort of a judgment call on the physician or the nurse practitioner to say, sounds like reflux, let's go with reflux treatment. If that doesn't get better in a week or two, then perhaps we can do the test. That's personally, that's the way I would approach it. But again, no no fault if you went the other way. Um, But if your pretest probability of having a problem in your heart is high enough, then you would go for the um, for the um, nuclear test. All right, and one follow-up question: Would I, would I have symptoms other than a little chest discomfort with GERD? I mean, would I taste something in my throat, or must would I feel something in my esophagus, or not necessarily? Some people have all those symptoms. You know, we have a long list of symptoms like like gastroesophageal reflux. You're refluxing that acidic uh, material in your stomach to the lower part of your esophagus. And heartburn is one of the most common symptoms. But you can also have um, that, that bitter taste in your mouth, particularly if you lay down later at night. You don't have to have that, though. Some people even have a sensation of shortness of breath. Some people have neck uh-huh. discomfort um, or they have a cold sensation. Everybody's wiring with their nerves and their chest is a little bit different. So that's something to keep in mind, too. But if, if, you know, if it's not in line with what your traditional, what, what symptoms you had with your heart disease to begin with, then it might be reflux. Yeah. Well, that's great information. Once again, I appreciate you and MPB. Oh, thank you, Bobby, and uh, good luck to you. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. Got some great questions already. Maybe uh, just another thing that we'll touch on from an email that we received recently. So this was an email question about diabetes. So uh, this page, uh, this listener has diabetes and wants to know, what is controlled diabetes? When we use that term, uh, what does that mean? And are there specific numbers to be aware of? And a final question, nerve damage in the feet, what are the specific symptoms of that? Great questions as it relates to diabetes. Type 2 diabetes, there there are two main types of diabetes, type 1 and type 2. Type 1 tends to be a lack of insulin, and it's usually diagnosed in a younger individual. But the vast majority of our cases of diabetes are type 2, and those are usually associated with increased weight. They can be... um, Uh, Inactivity certainly can uh, play into that. You may have other uh, cardiovascular disease risk factors like hypertension and high cholesterol that go along with those. But when we treat diabetes, basically we're wanting that glucose or blood sugar to be at a certain range. And normal would be anywhere from 80 to 120. 
Now, it does go up during different times of the day, particularly after you eat. But there's another uh, factor that we, or another number uh, that's a, a lab test that we get called an A1C. That's a hemoglobin A1C. And that gives us a three-month average of what that blood sugar is. And generally speaking, anything less than 6.5 would be really good control of that. But that's a number that as a diabetic, your doctor or your healthcare provider would get about every three months. Now, there may be certain, you know, certainly, again, less than 6.5, doing great. There may be some instances where they would want that to be a little bit higher, particularly if you're older. So if you're an older individual, we really don't have much data to state that, you know, if it's less than about 7, 7.5, then we don't really prolong life very much with that. And the diabetic, uh, you know, nerve damage, typically that's a pins and needles or a numbness sensation that's in a stocking glove distribution. In other words, if you were putting on gloves, your hands or uh, stockings on your feet uh, all the way up to your knees generally. But that's one of the complications. Again, keeping that blood sugar down would be one of the main ways that you can uh, help prevent that and to treat it. So two really good questions from an emailer about that. That's about all the time we have for today. I want to thank all of our listeners and all of our email listeners as well. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, and this has been MPB Think Radio's Southern Remedy, which is, pro, uh, which is uh, supported in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and, of course, donations from listeners just like yourself. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.